Our next guest says Russia's war in Ukraine is just the opening act in a new era of competition between authoritarian and democratic systems in which emerging technologies are a key battleground. Yanis Satz is a former chair of Latvia's National Cybersecurity Board, who's now the director of the NATO Strategic Communications Centre of Excellence. A Centre of Excellence is a standalone international military organisation separate from the NATO command structure that trains and educates high-level personnel. Director Sartz gave a keynote at the Australian Institute of International Affairs this week titled NATO and the War in Europe, Implications for Global Security Order. Yanis Sartz, welcome to Sunday Extra. Thank you very much for having me. Yanis, could we start please with some examples from the war in Ukraine of how data and technology can be used in contemporary military conflict and what implications do you think that has for future conflicts? Well, first and foremost, obviously, the war in Ukraine mostly reminds the old kind of wars we've had, mm. but there are elements which kind of give us an insight of how in a modern technology world, in a data world, how the conflict might pan out. And one of those, I think, very interesting uh, stories is where Ukrainians used Tinder for targeting uh, Russian soldiers. <laughs> and that was done in a way that as the invasion started, the uh, Ukrainian ladies started to see in their Tinder profiles, uh, Russian military service uh, personnel pictures. So they came up with an interesting idea that instead of just one, they run a multiple Tinder profiles that were geolocated on not very far from each other. And then as these uh, pictures started to show up in the profiles, they basically gave the distance from the person. And with the multiple uh, accounts, you can triangulate the exact location of that military. And of course, typically more than one person was on a Tinder. So you basically can triangulate the uh, unit itself, and um, the Ukrainians use it for artillery fire direction. But of course, mm -hmm. as a concept, it in a way gives you a sneak peek into what is this new element of Internet of Things based data that you can make out the realities in the places you have no physical access. And also, in a way, the rise of open source intelligence throughout the war has also given a kind of another edge an example how it is transforming the way we understand the battlefield. So uh, taking up the theme of your address this week, what do you see as the implications uh, for the global security order of the war in Ukraine? I think first and foremost, it is the opening set of what I would see the global competition of systems, uh, democracy versus autocracies. And we, of course, at this point, don't know how the war ends, although kind of my personal view is that Ukraine is going to win because they have all the necessary parameters for that. But what is really important, we have to understand that increasingly the information and information space and technology, emerging technology, is part of that battle. And not necessarily all of that battle will be about like hot war, because the best war is that you win without actually having to take up the gun. Yeah. And unfortunately, at least in Europe, over the basically best part of the previous decade, we've seen how Russia in particular has created these skills and mechanisms how to undermine us from within as a democracies and use that to their advantage. Luckily, 
they haven't been as successful as many of us feared. So in this war in Ukraine context, we've been able to kind of still rally around and push back. But I think that is something we have to be prepared also in the future, but in much more Mm. technologically elevated way. It's heartening to hear that you feel the preconditions, at least, for a Ukrainian victory are there. I've also read that you think an important factor for how long the war could last is how long Russian society, not just Vladimir Putin and his circle, will endure before public patience reaches a breaking point. And you admitted, I think, in that context that that's something you've been wrong about before. Do do you think it's inevitable that the Russian public will lose patience with the war? Yes, as you rightly said, I admitted I've been wrong on that account previously, because, of course, when we apply the kind of understanding and standards from a democratic society's perspective, the breaking point would have been achieved uh, way before. Mm. But if you look at the kind of experience that Russian society, at least part of the Russian society, has to go through, so first and foremost, that there is an economic deterioration of the situation. When you look how people that are mobilized are being used, uh, first, they don't get a proper equipment. Many of them have to self-equip. The training is extremely poor. And once they get to the front line, they're typically used as a cannon folder. So these are the kind of things that lead to the kind of idea, at least in my mind, that there has to be an increasing discontent to that kind of uh, behavior by Kremlin. But yes, I would also admit in the same time that the ability to control the whole behavior and uh, perception of this war in Russia by Putin has been quite strong. But I would point that I still believe it will break at some point. On Sunday Extra, we're speaking with Yanis Satz, Director of the NATO Strategic Communications Centre of Excellence. Yanis, um, NATO Stratcom COE has done some really amazing experiments uh, to see how freely available data can be used to manipulate the behaviour of opponents. Could you tell us about that? Well, yes. uh, One of the tasks of the centre is not only to look at what is current, but what is upcoming. And we all, I assume, have heard about manipulation of a behaviour based on the data that is available on people as humans. Hmm. And one of these stories some time ago was Cambridge Analytica. Of course. We tried to test the concept whether there's kind of really anything viable in that. So we teamed up with a Latvian military and we were the red team in a military exercise and we had to test whether we can from digital space tell who's participating in a military exercise we were able to to get uh, 15% of the exercise participant identities uh, clear. Then we scraped the open source data, what is available on them as humans, their behaviors, their thinking, their motivations. And then we use that data set to see whether we can affect what the soldiers do during the military exercise. So what we were able to accomplish, we were able to make soldiers leave the positions they had to defend during an exercise scenario. Basically, some of them had disobeyed orders. Also, the units uh, disclosed their locations at the times when we wanted. And that was, uh, unfortunately, I would argue, uh, highly success uh, because 100% of our engagements resulted in the behavior change. So Mm. that gave us a pause to think about how we have to 
think about it. What are the measures from our side in NATO that we have to apply to mitigate that risk? But also as a more fundamental problem, it is about how we as individuals and societies and democracies protect against this kind of manipulation at a very granular scale where the technology as we speak is being perfected. Mm. And I suppose it also gives us pause to think about how particular apps that might be massively popular and useful in times of peace or for domestic use could be dangerous if there's a conflict. And I noted that you've, uh, you've said there are three or four apps that could be particularly dangerous in a crisis scenario. And I wondered if you could explain that a little bit more for us. And obviously I wondered, which are the apps? <laughs> no, well, that comes basically from our research of the war, where we see the quite an important distinction between the apps and platforms that otherwise we typically criticize for not really taking care of, of their customers. But still, you could see the fundamental principles of how data can be accessed, who has it, is kind of something that we would say in, in line with a democratic principle of mm. government non-interference, while there are quite a number of other apps that we've seen uh, being used in very different ways. And in some cases, like uh, with Russian uh, VK equivalent of Facebook or Telegram increasingly, where we see that the data is not secure and it is available and accessible by the Russian government and uh, clearly has an implications. So there's a recent article in the Wire uh, magazine that uh, looks at the way dissidents in Russia are being tracked through Telegram platform, but also we've seen on a wider scale how it can be used by our Russian government for their information and other purposes. And therefore the idea is that if there is an ability from a hostile government in a crisis to access the platform from the other end without us knowing for changing the landscape of the information flow, changing the algorithm, what it prefers or not, or gathering data, it's a highly dangerous situation. And clearly, I think we have some of those examples, uh, as I've said, BK Telegram, but I would be also very cautious with TikTok um, because I'm not sure whether we have full confidence that that might not happen in a crisis in this situation. And one of the lessons you drew from scenarios like that is that in terms of emerging technologies, uh, we need to be better prepared. And you also said quicker to regulate. In terms of the speed with which some new apps take off, how viable do you think it is to address at the sort of ground up level these really major security concerns when it comes to emerging technologies and new apps? In my view, of course, that is a difficult thing to achieve, especially mm. given that like the way the uh, legislative process is, is in all of the countries is structured is very much 20th century. It takes time. It takes a lot of consultation and very, very rightly so. That's the way we've organized. But mm. somehow this technological reality is very different. Just take a look at chatbot GPT and soon to be uh, GPT-4 that is going to be released. And the vast impact in a positive way, but also the risks that entails and, and the fact that we're just like amazed, but 
we don't even know how to adjust that also mm. from a security perspective. But what I would suggest, we have to think what are the core elements that we have to look at. I think there are two core elements that has not been talked much about. For most of these new emerging technologies, one of the key elements for them succeeding is data access. The bigger the data sets, the more success is there. And therefore, I think thinking in a terms how we regulate that this data is available for good, for development of the technology, but cannot be, or if it is, it's easy to spot it, is not mm. used for hostile purposes or undermining society purposes. And then the other side, I think we have to be establishing the principles for these new technologies for market access. What are the key principles of transparency, accountability that these new things have to have? And in my view, for instance, um, the ability of government access, be it ours or others, should be one of the strictly outlined things that society has to be comfortable with how it is happening because in many of the cases many of the societies just doesn't know that there mm -hmm. is a quiet access and it is done in a way that undermines the democratic process in terms of having good principles for allowing the access of new technologies to particular markets are there jurisdictions or um, groups at the moment which you feel have identified what those principles should be or, or or indeed have them in practice well i think that is an ongoing discussion as as, as mm. you probably know here that europe is very much into the regulatory parts but for european union the the problem is this the speed of legislative process which yeah. takes years and years given that there are 28 uh, um, members but I think what is really important is that the core elements of the principle should be agreed beyond just Europe in a way as I've said in the very beginning we're in the kind of contest competition conflict of systems and the the more we as a west irrespective of geogra uh, geographical location can coordinate and cooperate on these basic principles the better it is for all of us and um, i think um, the core elements that i've said is transparency accountability ability to have an independent oversight when when needed when in question are the kind of the ones that we've been using in other instances but somehow have not been applied to this digital space because it seemed to be different but in fact i think it is not anything that has power in a democratic system needs to have these three things transparency accountability and independent oversight at the recent World Economic Forum in Davos, the CEO of Nokia forecast that there will be 6G mobile networks by 2030, but also that smartphones as we know them will be phased out by then, which is sort of hard to get your head around at, at the moment. But I suppose it's your job to get your head around those sorts of uh, uh, hard to conceive technological transformations. What do you think? Do you think it's right that smartphones uh, will be phased out within the decade? And what sort of dangers do you see in the pipeline from such major technological change? Well, there are quite a few technological surprises for us, but I think the conventional kind of uh, view of the people looking into the future trends is that it's right. Smartphone, we're living the last period with the smartphones. 
very likely it is going to be replaced by one or another sort of metaverse, or in other words, immersive technologies uh, like virtual reality and augmented reality. Also, I think probably not a decade, but the kind of augmented human options will be starting to become more uh, readily available. Just think about the different companies that are emerging that are trying to kind of bring in the chips into the human brain for enhancement. I think there'll be some results by that. And much of what is done by the current smartphone will be replaced first by the metaverse and eventually probably for this chip interaction. And that is what I think is what is waiting for us. And if you think about those two trends, and we know that social media based on a smartphone is dangerous, then these two, if not correctly handled, have far more dangerous applications, mm. both individually as well as for us collectively. And just finally, Yanis Sartz, um, I read on your website that Australia has initiated the joining process to become part of NATO Stratcom COE. Uh, what's the status of that? Well, we have an uh, Australian officer down in Riga now working together with us, uh, sharing insights of the Australian uh, government, uh, but also being able to access the experiences of various European countries. We have total 17 countries in our centre, and we hope that some of what is the lessons learned in our part of the world might be of use for Australia, both the government, society, media and citizens, so that you might not repeat some of the mistakes we're doing. Yana <laughs> Sartz, thank you so much for speaking with us on Sunday Extra. Thank you very much. And Yanis is Director of the NATO Strategic Communications Centre of Excellence. It's easier than ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations, live and on demand on the ABC Listen app.